Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Where we are at, the particular place where we are at tonight, um, we're reflecting on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Anna read the text, so I'm going to speak for a few minutes and kind of paint the picture for you. And then we'll read it again slowly. And I'm only going to talk for about 13 minutes. And then... um, Anna and Miranda are coming back and we're having some sort of silent meditation just to honor the space of Lent and and Jesus calling us to abide, not to do or to leave, to abide. Uh, And I think abiding is an act of resistance and so we will be invited to that place tonight. But essentially, if you haven't um, considered this already, Jesus is in a state of deep distress. He is not triumphant or resolved. He is in the throes of deeply confusing emotions and convictions. He is unsettled, disoriented, and conflicted. And I want to give you some context to understand the moment that Jesus is in and what it must have been like for him. So about 10 to 12 days before this night, he has left his home region of Galilee in the north to begin a journey south to Jerusalem for the Passover, which was a sacred festival that took place once a year and had to be observed in the city of Jerusalem. It was actually against the scriptures to have the meal at your own house in your own town. You had to travel and do it in Jerusalem. The city would be extremely crowded, if you can imagine. Everybody from the, from the, the nation, all in this one city for this one week. Um, it would be so crowded and so busy during this one week of the year. It's about 140 kilometers uh, walk from Jesus' hometown to Jerusalem. So in our context, imagine um, you live in Red Deer, and once a year you have to walk to Bonex. The walk would take them five or six days, and they would be in Jerusalem for about one week, and then they would make the journey back home. Jesus would have made this journey every year of his life. The scene in Gethsemane takes place actually right after the big Passover meal. So have you ever had a full belly with friends and family and then gone for a walk after your meal? Maybe you walk to a local garden. The disciples think they will all begin their long walk home in the next day or two. The meal is finished. They are not presently in their hometown. Jerusalem is not their home. It's a big city in the region of Judea, and they are farmers and fishermen from the northern region of Galilee. So Jesus and his disciples would have had an accent, and the Judean locals would have associated their accents most likely with being like a country bumpkin a bit of a hillbilly, uneducated, possibly even lower class. Imagine a group of newfies in an old truck driving downtown Calgary, uh, asking men in suits driving Teslas for directions. Imagine a group of black boys from the projects speaking to white police officers, and the officers might think the boys should pull up their pants and speak properly. The at one group would be considered uneducated, unkempt, unworthy perhaps, and the other group might see themselves as the normal, the civilized, the authoritative, the ones who are dressed properly, the ones speaking properly. Spoiler alert, a few hours after this scene in Gethsemane, Peter will deny knowing Jesus after Judean people recognize Peter as one of his disciples. 
they will recognize Peter because he speaks like a Galilean and dresses like a Galilean. So Jesus is not in his hometown. He is an outsider and he is vulnerable. This, this, um, so halfway through the book of Mark is when Jesus begins his journey towards Jerusalem where he is now. Jesus only visits Jerusalem one time in Mark's gospel. The first half of Mark, uh, Jesus is just traveling around his home region in the north. But halfway through in chapter 8, Jesus and the disciples set out on the way to the big city. Jesus officially enters Jerusalem in chapter 11, riding on a donkey, greeted by simple folk, shouting, Hosanna! The word about Jesus had made it all the way to the big city. They had all heard about this man. They knew something was happening. And they wondered, has this man come to simply observe the Passover meal like everyone else? Or... Has he come to confront the Roman occupation and restore the land of Jerusalem to Israelite sovereignty? A big holiday and a possible confrontation with Rome? They are anxiously excited. There's an energy in the air. There's an anticipation and a dramatic intrigue. So since chapter 11 until now, we're at the end of chapter 14, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for a few days, and the tension is thick. Nervous systems are activated. Jesus has been constantly interrogated, questioned, and baited. He speaks in code about coming difficulties. He publicly denounces the religious elite. He speaks about the destruction of their most holy place, the temple. And for these last few days since chapter 11, since he has arrived in Jerusalem, he has performed no miracles. He has healed nobody. He is divisive, as the people would say, and confrontational and secretive. He offends the authorities every time he speaks and confuses his disciples every time he tries to explain. He warns his followers at the end of chapter 13, be aware, keep alert, keep awake. For, and I quote, no one knows when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or at cock crow or at the dawn. Jesus says in Mark 13, 36, lest the master come and find you asleep. I say to you what I say to all, keep away. In Mark's gospel, Jesus often retreats to private places. And tonight is no exception. Here he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right after the Passover meal. In the late evening, but earlier on this same day, if you remember, Jesus had retreated to a small village called Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. So imagine downtown Calgary is Jerusalem. Earlier that day, Jesus had visited the quaint little village of Bonus. He's in Bethany, visiting an old friend, Simon the leper. And there, at Simon's house earlier that day, he was anointed with an extremely expensive ointment by an unnamed woman. The disciples were annoyed that such a wasteful amount of perfume was, was wasted on him. And Judas got up at that moment and left the disciples with the intention to turn Jesus into Jerusalem authorities who were looking for him. Judas knew there'd be a financial reward if he were to turn Jesus in. This is a common temptation outside of space when they need to survive in the big city. Jesus defended her wasteful actions, saying she was anointing him for his burial and that wherever in the world the gospel would be proclaimed, her anointing would be told in honor of her. That would be confusing and unsettling. We're dumping out $60,000 worth of ointment. We're talking about burials. What do you mean the gospel told everywhere in the world? It's strange. So after leaving Simon's house, smelling like $60,000 worth of perfume, Jesus had the Passover meal in Jerusalem. 
after eating and predicting his betrayal, after announcing that he would never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God, they go for a post-dinner walk to the Mount of Olives. No doubt, the disciples are wondering about his strange announcement. Does this mean the kingdom of God is at hand? Or should we be grieving that Jesus is not going to drink wine with us? Confusing. Probably exhausting. Have you ever traveled for a long period of time? You're tired. Jesus and his disciples walk to a garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is the Hebrew word for oil press. This is no ordinary garden. It's an olive grove. And this is not just an olive grove. Olive oil is the, one of the nation's primary exports and natural resources. This is a garden, and this is a place of extraction and industry. An oil press would have been right there in the grove. It's literally called the oil press garden. I wonder, would it have smelled like olives? Or would Jesus still smell strongly of the perfume he was coated in earlier that day? Can you smell it now? The text says that Jesus began to be distressed and agitated. Consider this. Feel it in your body. What does it mean to be distressed and agitated? Jesus says, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here with me. Have you ever been distressed, agitated, grieved to death? What was it like? How did it feel in your body? Where were you the last time you felt this much anguish? Were you in fetal position on the kitchen floor? Were you in the hospital, watching loved ones lose the battle with sickness? Were you on the side of the road, punching your steering wheel? Were you holding your phone, daring yourself to just call for help? Were you feeling powerless and invisible, alone and yet desperate to not be alone? And in that place, were your prayers intelligible? Or did they come out in moans? Were you begging, do something? Please, God, just do something. If you're real, you can do something. Please be real. I want you do something. Please, take this from me. I can't do this. I can't go through this. I can't go through this again. Please make it stop. Please take this. Do something. In Luke's account of this same story, Jesus is so distressed that he's sweating blood. His physical anguish is a full-bodied experience. Have you experienced anything like this before? I'm betting some of you have, at least to an extent. And I'm betting it feels vulnerable to remember. It can feel humiliating to lose your cool and fall into full-bodied despair. You probably wanted to be alone and unseen and crumble into solitude, and yet the despair was likely made worse by the feeling of being very much alone and unseen and trapped in solitude. Remain here with me, Jesus said. Keep away. Stay here. I have on the slide here the text from Mark, um, and it's broken up over a few slides so we can read it and, and we can ponder it sort of slowly. I'm going to read it. And I want you to imagine it kind of like a Lectio Divina. Um, my prayer is that there would be a word or a phrase or an image or something that would kind of grab your attention uh, in a different way than the rest of the text. But we'll read it. Try and go there. 
and we'll reflect for a moment about what it means to abide, to remain, to stay awake. So Mark 14, 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. He said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. Going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake and pray one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the body is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Once more he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough! The hour has come. The human one is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Sometimes we want to only see the side of Jesus that is in control. We want the stoic Jesus in clean clothes with a shaved face, resolved to pray, not my will, but yours be done. He's in control. He's resolved. He knows what's coming. And the anguish is just an act to fulfill ancient prophecies. We want the Jesus who is safe and invulnerable. We want that Jesus to live in our hearts and guide our path and seal our hearts for the victory of heaven's paradise. We, and Carrie Underwood, want that Jesus to take the wheel. We do not like complex situations, complex emotions, or complex theologies. We do not know what to do with a complicated God who can both heal the dying and beg for the cup of death to pass from him. Our minds are wired to want clear boundaries between what's safe and unsafe. We want good or bad, right, wrong. We want something to do or permission to go to sleep. We want to fix it or we want to give up. We don't want to abide in that garden. We have evolved to be hypersensitive to threats and discomfort because we're wired to survive. When a lion is chasing you, you do not really have the ability to slow down and consider what it must be like for the hungry lion and her hungry lion cubs and consider negotiation. Maybe you could have like my arm, but not all of me. Like you don't, you don't slow down and think about the nuance. When you're afraid, your thinking brain shuts off and your survival brain is activated. Run for your life or turn in front. Your survival brain is impulsive and powerful. It gives you no notice and no chance to consider an alternative reaction or response. There is only stimulus and response, action and reaction. Trauma, you could say, is when you experience something that locks your brain in that survival mode, even after the threat is gone. People who have experienced trauma often depend on clear boundaries between safe and unsafe in order to function. 
um, a person who's experienced trauma, let's say who was physically assaulted by someone of a different ethnicity or a different gender, would be smart to treat all people of that ethnicity or all people of that gender as a threat. And it would be wise to stay in fight or flight mode at all times around people who look like your attacker or in spaces that look like the place where you were harmed. A person who's experienced trauma might enter a crowded space and immediately become hypervigilant trying to discern the threats in the room. If you were in a car accident, it is common to not be able to drive for months after the accident because your brain is resolved to the reality that cars are unsafe. Your brain figures out that if you avoid cars, you avoid harm. Simple math. And the reality is, it is unsafe to drive in a car or fly in an airplane, to go hiking in the mountains where grizzly bears and mountain lions live. It's unsafe to leave your house or to walk down a set of stairs or to go in public. It could be sick people. It's unsafe to eat McDonald's. It's unsafe to go for a run alone by the river. It's unsafe to set boundaries or to speak up. It's unsafe to post something online or to engage a debate. It's unsafe to be seen. It's unsafe to have needs or to express emotions. It's unsafe to speak, to rock the boat, to draw attention. And when you feel unsafe all the time, the only real option is to find certainty, go inside, close the door behind you, lock it. Research shows that many of us are constantly living in this state of mind, even when we're not facing threats of death or violence. We're exhausted. We use things like emotional burnout. We are exhausted, and we're desperate to turn off the internal alarms and rest. It turns out it requires an immense amount of felt safety to be able to hold complex emotions and to be calm and at ease in complex situations. In fact, many of us, when we're confronted with complex emotions and complex situations, instantly dissociate or seek to escape that discomfort. And research shows that addiction and impulsive behavior is often a symptom of this felt need for escape. It's profound to reflect on the fact that it's not the substance or the habit that's the problem. It's the person's reality. We could take away the, the substance or try really hard to stop the impulsive behavior, but if the reality still feels unsafe and unbearable, the efforts would fail. When I feel uncomfortable things, I like to reach for the red wand. Or I grab my visa and start buying stuff from Instagram. I start running, or I start dieting, or I start eating ice cream until I can't feel anything except the glorious feeling of a very, very, very full belt. I escape complex emotions with hatred. I escape complex emotions by fawning or by morphing into whatever I need to be safe in all the different situations. I felt this during the height of the pandemic. It takes a ton of emotional awareness to hold the conflicting feelings of not wanting to get anyone sick on one hand and not wanting to miss out on the intimacy of friendship and community on the other. It's very difficult to be open to the complexity. Some of us wanted to just be told what to do. Give me rules to follow and I will obey and I will feel safe. And some of us felt terrified to put our safety in someone else's hands, and we resisted every rule that was put on us, feeling more threatened by the person making the rules than we did by the virus. Some of us wanted to both trust the authorities, keep our friends safe, stop the spread, and maintain a connection to friends within the complexities of harm reduction, risk assessment, and informed consent. We wanted all or nothing, good or bad, right and wrong. Some of us maybe saw something on TV once, about drag queens and pride parades and HIV. 
and we reacted with a conviction. Homosexuality is 100% bad and wrong and dangerous and should be stopped. It takes a lot of emotional maturity to say, there are some ways of acting that are harmful and selfish. And there are other ways of acting that are responsible and life-giving. And I am able to discern the difference and trust my community with discerning the difference. There are harmful and abusive ways of being heterosexual. And I don't think all heterosexuality is evil. Perhaps there is a nuance and a complexity here. Perhaps I have more to learn. It's difficult. It's difficult to be in that uncomfortable, complex space. It's easier to just label right, wrong, good, bad. It's easier to feel safe when we avoid complex emotions, complex situations, and complex theologies, to avoid complex relationships, to avoid complex people. We can avoid, repress, and numb ourselves to nuance. Think about this with me. When was the last time you numbed yourself? What did you use to numb yourself? When was the last time you tried to escape the complexity of the moment? And what did you use to escape? When you try to numb yourself to grief, the tragedy is that you often also end up numbing yourself to joy. Joy and grief, it turns out, are not mutually exclusive. When you resist discomfort entirely, you often miss out on the healing that comes with surrender. Resistance and surrender are not mutually exclusive. Wins and losses are not mutually exclusive. When you numb yourself to avoid feelings of failure, you cut yourself off from the place where hope comes from. When you numb yourself to feelings of uncertainty, you cut yourself off from wonder, mystery. If you avoid vulnerability, you avoid intimacy. If you avoid risk, you avoid being alive. Now, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not saying you should be open to having a complicated relationship with your abuse. That's not this, this point. Your safety is number one. But I am talking about the default setting of our brains that has that, that, that likes seeing everyone and everything as a threat to be avoided because of the untold stories and the unresolved grief our bodies have been holding since the trauma. Whether it was a series of traumatic events you personally survived, or a collective trauma you've absorbed, or an inherited trauma you were born with. At the center of our faith is a God, fully human. A God who can rise up from the grave and grant eternal life. And a God who can throw himself on the ground in anguish. A God who helps us heal our traumas. And a God who himself has been traumatized. A wounded healer. At the center of our faith is a God with us in our joy. At the big table with wine and laughter and intimacy. And a God who is with us on the kitchen floor. On the side of the road. Alone in the night. And this God is familiar with complexity. At the center of our faith is a bleeding God, a dead man resurrected, a God who is friends with tax collectors and sex workers, but who also heals Roman centurions and eats with Pharisees, a God who stands silent before his executioner and yet begs his friends to stay awake and pray with him. In the darkest moment of his life, a God who meets us in our need and a God who needs us to remain with him. A God who is sent to invite us in to the place of love and a God who is sending us out to love. A God who calls us to rise up to the challenge in power and a God who throws his body on the forest floor, passive and powerless. 
And so, my friends, this is the first Sunday of Lent, and this is the invitation. Stay awake. Remain here. Remain in this complex place. Remain in Gethsemane. Hold in one hand your deepest longing for God to show up and do something. And on the other hand, hold space for surrender to the work of God in the world that God loves. On one hand, Abba, Father, please take this cup from me. With you, all things are possible. And on the other hand, I submit to this now, to the tyranny of being alive right here, right now, with all of you. For the next 40 days, I want to challenge you to pay attention to yourself. Notice when you're reaching for the thing that will numb you. Notice when you're zoning out, trying to escape. Notice when you've lost track of the time you've spent playing the video game or scrolling Instagram or working late. Notice when you're avoiding your partner, your roommate, your boss, your appetite. Notice when you're avoiding, when you're going numb, when you're falling asleep, and confess it. Confess it to yourself when you're doing it. Confess it to God. Confess it to a friend. Confess it to a pastor or an elder. And ask God to help you stay awake to stay present. Ask God to protect you from the idealism that pulls you forward and the nostalgia that pulls you back. Ask God to protect you from the soothing balm of performing peace. Jesus meets us here in this place tonight, and Jesus asks us to stay awake with him in this place. He sees what's going on. He's read the news. He knows the complexity of your situation, and he meets us here. And he is saying, deeply grieved about this, even to death. Remain here with me and stay awake. So you might still need uh, to escape the present moment sometimes. But when you're ready to be present, Jesus is there. He's here right now. Not in the next moment, waiting. Not back in the previous one. He's not in the alternate timeline where everything is okay. And he's not on the other side of that thing you have to do. He's here, and he's awake, and he's conflicted. And he invites us to stay awake and remain with him in this conflicted space. You see, Jesus knows about gardens and darkness. He knows about the seeds of new life and the dark soil from where they spread. He knows about new birth and transformation. He knows that healing begins at the site of the womb. And so tonight, he goes there, and he remains there, and he stays awake. He knows that vulnerability is not a weakness, but the greatest tool we have for transformation. And our God is vulnerable in this place and is inviting us to intimacy. Abide with me here. So I'm going to um, say a, a short prayer, and then um, for the next 10 minutes, we're going to have a Taze meditation uh, with Anna and Miranda. And then there will be time for you to come fully present to this moment, to this space, for you to notice yourself and to notice Jesus here now. Um, while the Taze is being sung, these slides with the scriptures, she'll go back to the beginning and just slowly move through so you can meditate on it. And there's a space up here, look. And if you would like to get up and write down a word or a phrase, you're welcome to use that space. Or you can just sit and reflect and abide, be present. After the Taze song, I will come up and I'll just say the communion text. I won't do a long thing. Um, and you, when you come forward to do communion on your way to sit down, you might at that point write down 
a phrase or a word. I'm not sure. It's up to you. Um, but this is the invitation for Lent, that we would stay awake and remain. So let's pray. Uh, God who loves the world so much, you sent your son to the garden, to the forest floor, the place of anguish and distress and agitation. It is not us who invite you to join us here. We see that you have invited us to join you. I pray that you would forgive us for the ways we have tried to numb ourselves in a state. The false gods, the false idols we've imagined would grant us momentary relief, momentary fulfillment. We confess the ways we have made you an idol. How many times have we seen you as a, 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 a tool we can use to escape the discomfort? I pray that we would see you not as a ticket out, but as the ticket in. That we would see you as the one who sees us, who witnesses us, who is present with us through the night. Give us, give us the humility to notice the love in this place for us. And make us a people who know that with the love in this place, we can endure all things. Abide with us. We are awake to you and with you. We are awake to people in our neighborhood who know this distress and anguish, who suspect they're alone. Give us eyes that are awake to their prayers, to your prayers, the prayers of those who love you. In the name of Jesus, we're spreading